Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 97. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media in a variety of places. If you want to find me on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash Brian McClanahan. That is Brian with an O. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just do a search for Brian McClanahan. Also, if you go to my webpage, www.brianmcclanahan.com, and you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly of Forgotten Founders. So it's quite a deal. And you get signed up for the Brian McClanahan newsletter. You'll get uh, probably one or two emails a week. So nothing, nothing uh, too much, but uh, just enough to keep in contact. Also, if you do like this podcast and you want to support the Brian McClanahan show, you can do so at brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw as many pennies my way as you want to, and I would appreciate anything you want to contribute. And, as I talked about in the lead-up to this podcast, if you are interested in getting in on the goodies for my new book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, which I'm actually going to be talking about in today's podcast, you're going to want to go to BlameHamilton.com, purchase one book, pre-order one book, and I'll send you an e-book, The Jeffersonian Solution, purchase two or more on pre-order, and I will send you not only the e-book, The Jeffersonian Solution, but also a free six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. And anyone who pre-orders the book and sends me a screenshot of their invoice is going to be registered for the drawing for a master-level membership to Liberty Classroom. So you don't want to miss that. There's also a second and third place prize as well. So go on and get those goodies because they all end September 18th. So that's that seems like a long way away, but it's not that. And we're, we're just a little over a month away from the actual launch of the book. And so you want to get on those things while you can. And speaking of how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, I thought today would be a nice day to talk about a part of the book that I really haven't gotten into a whole lot. Even when I did this, uh, my interview with uh, the Tom Woods show, we talked about the first half of the book and, and simply Alexander Hamilton. But there's also another part of the book that I think is just as juicy, if not juicier, than the first half. And that focuses on three individuals, John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black. And so today I actually want to talk about one particular part of that second half of the book. And it's not about Marshall or Story or Black. It's the, it's the opponents 
of Marshall's story in black that don't really get enough publicity. And I'm not going to give everything away, but I am going to talk about some of these people and what they said about the decisions, the nationalist decisions that the Supreme Court justices, namely Marshall and Story, were handing down. Black is 20th century, and so there's a whole chapter on black and incorporation, which, by the way, I talk about briefly in the last Mises weekend with uh, Jeff Dice. You can go out there and look for that. Just search for me and Mises weekend. It'll come up with a discussion with Alan Mendenhall and Jeff Dice on is the Constitution still relevant, or you know, should libertarians uh, admire the Constitution? But uh, I do talk about incorporation there, uh, but this particular issue, when I'm looking at uh, Black, and, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Marshall and Story, we need to understand what their, who their opponents were and what they were saying, because I think in so many ways, these guys ripped apart every component of the nationalist myth of American history, and particularly of the Constitution. So anyone who goes out to, to uh, become a lawyer, you're going to take a con law class, which I think con describes it the most because it's a con job when you take con law but you're going to learn a lot about marshall and story you might even uh, read parts of stories uh, commentaries on the constitution of course you're going to read john marshall's decisions you can't get around them but what you don't often read are the critiques of these particular decisions from a group of men called the richmond junto now if, unless you're a complete history nerd uh, and you love early American history, and you love Virginia. And so there's about five people out there like that. Uh, you're not going to know anything about the Richmond Junto. In fact, I could even say that uh, you know even people that love early Virginia history and love American history may still not know much about the Richmond Junto because they have been relegated to that uh, terrible other position in American history. Those who are on the quote-unquote wrong side of history. Those who are advocating positions that were out of touch with the progress of the American quote-unquote nation. And so these guys aren't often talked about, and that's unfortunate because they had some really good things to say about the American uh, constitutional experience, about American government, about originalism, all these things that uh, are so important for our current political state. You know, we're, we've been talking about now, you know, federalism, what is that? What are the proper powers? What is the proper distribution of powers between the central authority and the state governments? These are important issues moving forward. And it's, it's like a broken record because there were people talking about this in the early 1800s. There were people talking about it in the late 18th century, late 1700s. Uh, there were people talking about this when we had the Articles of Confederation. So all of these things were discussed, openly discussed, and not in the way that they're discussed today because no one uh, said, well, these people are just crazy. These people are just, you know, outsiders. They're just fools. No one said that. In fact, when you look at the Richmond Junto, these people had a lot of power in their state. A lot of power. One of the more famous individuals in the Richmond Junto was Spencer Rowan, and he was one of the uh, justices on what amounted to the Virginia Supreme Court. So these people were, were very prominent individuals. In fact, Jefferson probably would have nominated Rowan for a uh, Supreme Court position, United States Supreme Court position, if Adams had not appointed John Marshall Chief Justice just before he left office. So we might have had Chief Justice Spencer Rowan, which would have changed the entire course of American history. And so Spencer Rowan was not a nobody. Spencer Rowan was not some crazy guy living on a mountain with long beard and long fingernails who didn't know anything. 
And that's often how these people are portrayed, or he's not some some crazy, uh, you know, guy. Oftentimes, these people are, you know, the preppers. They've got a an estate uh, an estate somewhere, and they've got some bunker, and they're stockpiling food and ammunition for the uh, coming of the apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse, or something. Spencer Rowan was a very prominent member of society, and I think these are people we should listen to, particularly when we start talking about uh, the powers of the general government. And if you're a lawyer. Uh, listening to this program, or you're an aspiring lawyer, go on out and read Spencer Rowan. Uh, read these other legal minds besides Joseph Story and uh, John Marshall. I mean, there's a lot out there. And of course, the second half of my book covers a lot of this stuff. So you can read that, and hopefully you will, and get something out of it. In fact, I'll be back on the Tom Wood Show probably before the book comes out, and we'll talk about this second half. But I want to focus on this group, this Richmond Junto, and talk about a couple of these people and some of the things they said, because it's so good uh, that you just, I mean, you can read it over and over again, and it never gets old. So a couple of individuals, uh, af- after the uh, McCulloch v. Maryland decision uh, in 1819, uh, there was substantial opposition to that particular decision. And, of course, the decision itself was... Uh, telegraphed as being one of the more important in American history. That Marshall had made it clear that this was going to be a big decision, and the uh, Supreme Court chambers were packed that day when they when the decision was handed out. They were packed to hear the arguments, but people really understood the implications of McCulloch v. Maryland, and they wanted to be sure they knew exactly what was going to happen here. So after Marshall handed down his very nationalist decision, which codified implied powers, and I get into the whole story in, in the uh, and the how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, you had reaction to it. Uh, and uh, only the Federalist newspapers of New England really enthusiastically supported it. Um, uh, others were, were fairly lukewarm, and I think the, the most decisive opposition came from this Richmond Junto, and there were a couple of individuals who did a very good job in writing about it and against it. And the first was... William Brockenbro, uh, who was a uh, a uh, uh, Virginian, and also uh, Spencer Rowan. And so these two people were part of this Richmond Junto. And I want to bring up something that Brockenbro said. Um, he wrote in an, in an essay this, quote, he had, he had a real problem with McCulloch v. Maryland uh, because it violated the principle of federalism or states' rights in uh, in several ways. First, he said, the first is the, is the denial that the powers of the federal government were delegated by the states. So he says, McCulloch v. Maryland denies this. And the second is that the grant of powers to that government, and particularly the grant of powers, quote, necessary and proper, to carry the other powers into effect, ought to be construed in a liberal rather than a restricted sense. So he's pointing out McCulloch v. Maryland has real problems. One, it denies that the states delegated the powers of the central authority. And two, that those powers are restricted. And that's, of course, how the Constitution was sold to the states. So he's pointing out originalism here. He continues, Both of these principles tend directly to consolidation of the states and to strip them of some of the most important attributes of their sovereignty. If the Congress of the United States should think proper to legislate to the full extent upon the principles now educated by the Supreme Court, it is difficult to say how small would be the remnant of power left in the hands of the state authorities. 
He's saying this in 1819. And you read that and you think, oh my gosh, that's exactly what's happened. We no longer have a government of restricted powers. They do whatever they want. The necessary and proper clause is now you can do it anything you want to do clause. I mean, this is, this is the real problem with the federal government. And where it gets the authority, essentially, is John Marshall. And John Marshall was channeling Alexander Hamilton every time he wrote a decision. This is why he's part of the book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So this is, this is an accurate portrayal of what originalism says. Look, we have, we have delegated powers of the central authority, and those powers are delegated by the states. They were granted, as Article I says, by the states, by the people of the states, and a granted power can be rescinded. Uh, so this is a very important distinction to make. And not just that, by rendering such a nationalist opinion, you reduce the states to mere corporations, which is exactly what Alexander Hamilton wanted to do in 1787. He denied it in 1788, but he made it clear in 1787 that was the case. So now you have this pointed out, this codified, this Hamiltonian opinion of the United States government is now codified by McCulloch v. Maryland. And the, and the Richmond Junto was pointing it out. Spencer Rowan, another, of course, we just talked about him, said in a series of essays this, quote, The people of this vast country, when their state legislatures are put aside, will be so sparse and diluted that they cannot make any effectual head against an invasion of their rights. The triumph over our liberties will be consequently easy and complete. Nothing can arrest this calamity but a conviction of the danger being brought home to the minds of the people. So here's Rowan saying, you know what the problem is? If we go out and we have this, we, we have this uh, central authority, the states are so sparse. I mean, you're thinking 1819, uh, the population of the United States, much smaller, the states much smaller. And so these people can't really, without their states, they can't really mount an effectual opposition against the central authority. I could even make a case, even with 320 million people, the people can't really mount an effective uh, case against the central authority. They can't do it unless you have an agent to act on your behalf, and that's the states. The states have to have the backbone, and Rome's pointing that out. In 1819, you have to have the states working as your advocate as and, and blocking as your hedge against unconstitutional federal action. You can't do it any other way. Now, of course, another very important member of that Richmond Junto was John Taylor of Caroline. And one of these days, I'll do an entire podcast on John Taylor because he deserves it. Uh, but I do focus on John Taylor in the book as well. I spend a lot of time talking about his discussion of McCulloch v. Maryland and who John Taylor was. And, of course, I also wrote about John Taylor in my Founding Fathers, uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, excuse me. And so moving forward, you had this impression of the federal judiciary that it could do whatever it wanted. Of course, it could invalidate a state law, and it has that authority, it says, through, through Section 25 of the 1789 Judiciary Act. And this is something else I spent a lot of time writing about in the book. Uh, that, that it more than anything else, is one of the great problems of the, uh, of the American political system. And Congress could do away with it. They could simply revoke Section 25 
of the 1789 Judiciary Act. Of course, we've had other Judiciary Acts, but that, that particular principle stayed in place. They could simply revoke that. And what that said is that you can directly appeal a, a violation of a, of a state law to federal court. If you think that state uh, this particular state has violated a federal law, you just skip the entire state process and you just appeal right to a federal court. And this is why so many laws now are held, in uh, so many state laws are held to be unconstitutional by federal courts. This was not what the founding generation had in mind when the Constitution was ratified. Now, of course, you could say, well, yeah, but the founding generation wrote the 1789 Judiciary Act. That's true. They did. But when they were arguing for ratification, I bring this up in the book, they sang a completely different tune than what we got in the first Congress. So the Constitution as ratified is very important here, not the one that we got when Congress met and they decided to pass a stupid law, because that's what happened. So Section 25 of the Judiciary Act is one of the great uh, problems of the American political system, one of the great uh, mistakes of the Congress. And this, of course, was the first Congress. So sometimes people say, well, when did the Constitution go awry? Tell them 1789 in the first Congress. It, it, it was then that we lost originalism because we had this Judiciary Act. Now, again... The Congress could do something about this. They could completely abolish several levels of federal courts if they wanted to. They could, they could get rid of this provision where you can directly appeal to a federal court. They could do any of that. They could reduce the Supreme Court to one justice or three justices. They could make them ride the circuit, which would cause them to do a lot more work. They could do all kinds of things to really make it difficult for the federal courts to cause all the problems that they do. But Congress won't do that. And this is why I've you know, jokingly said, well, one of these days I need to write how Congress screwed up America because uh, that would be a good book in and of itself. We'd have the executive branch. Now we're getting in this book some of the, some of the judicial branch. I've got to get the legislative branch and take them out too because there is a major problem with the legislative branch as well. They punt too much responsibility and create too much bad legislation. So you've got this, this Judiciary Act of 1789, and you've got this Section 25, and Virginia hated it. You've got the Richmond Junto again, and they hate this thing. In fact, they were continually agitating against it. And one of the more important things that happened was um, a, a law that Virginia passed at one point that said, okay, here's what we're going to do. If Section 25 of the Judiciary Act says you can appeal a state court decision to the federal court, what we'll do is we'll just say, okay, uh, we're going to stop these lower courts from even, from even being able to appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court, the Virginia Court of Appeals. So once a lower court in Virginia has made a decision, it's final for certain types of, of violations. You can't appeal it anywhere else because then if you couldn't appeal it to the Virginia Court of Appeals, you couldn't use Section 25 and say, I'm going to appeal to the federal court system. It just nipped all that in the bud. No more. So Virginia was trying to be very proactive in stopping this, what they considered to be federal tyranny and a usurpation of power by the general government from the states. Now, Spencer Rohn wrote a uh, very interesting uh, opinion about Section 25. He said this, quote, 
The appellate power of the Supreme Court of the United States does not extend to this court under a sound construction of the Constitution of the United States. That so much of the 25th section of the Act of Congress is not in pursuance of the Constitution of the United States and that obedience to its mandate be declined by this court. Now, there was another member of the Virginia Court of Appeals. His name was William Cable. And Cable was actually uh, the political protege of Thomas Jefferson at one point. He said this, quote, One court cannot be correctly said to be superior to another unless both of them belong to the same sovereignty. So what he's saying here is very important. The Virginia Court of Appeals is not an inferior court to the United States Supreme Court. It is an equal court to the United States Supreme Court. Because Virginia is a so- the Court of Appeals is a sovereign court in the sovereign state of Virginia. And that the U.S. Supreme Court is another court to a sovereignty. He said, The courts of the United States, therefore belonging to one sovereignty, cannot be appellate courts in relation to the state courts, which belong to a different sovereignty. And he's exactly right about that. But we don't look at it that way. We look at the state courts as somehow inferior to the Supreme Court. It's simply not true. They have their own sphere of influence, their own sovereignty, and so therefore they are not inferior courts. They are equal courts with the federal court system. We don't look at it that way, but it's entirely true. The only inferior courts to the Supreme Court are the federal appellate courts, the bankruptcy courts, the district courts. Those courts are all inferior to the federal Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court of Alabama is not inferior to the federal Supreme Court. It is an equal court. It can be viewed in no other way. Because by saying the Supreme Court is supreme over the state courts, now you're distorting the original intent of the Constitution, an intent that was made clear over and over again during the ratification process. But most attorneys, and then who become judges, will never hear this. Now, you do have some who will hear it and say, yeah, uh, I agree. The problem is, I mean, we even saw it in, in Alabama, you know, Chief Justice Roy Moore is being knocked down by Uh, at one point, by the federal courts. He couldn't. Because the Supreme Court of Alabama is supreme. It's it's not subject to the federal courts. It's supreme. So when you move forward, you know, we had this Virginia uh, situation where they tried to knock down Section 25. We had a very interesting case. It's one of those that's not well known. But it's entitled Cohen's v. Virginia. And uh, just to give you some of the background, and I get into more detail in the book, but a couple of guys, a couple of brothers, last name Cohen, were arrested in Virginia for selling lottery tickets. These lottery tickets, first of all, Cohen, the Cohen brothers were from Maryland. The lottery was from the federal government out of Washington, D.C., and they were selling these tickets illegally in Virginia. Virginia had already said the lottery was illegal in that state, so you couldn't sell tickets there. So uh, you had... uh, Citizens of Maryland arrested in Virginia for selling lottery tickets from D.C. And so that made it to where they thought they could appeal this decision all the way to the federal court system and bypass the Virginia law that mandated that they actually go through the Virginia legal system. And once Virginia said, you've broken the law, you can't appeal, that should have been it. But no. Their defense team says, you know what, we're going to skip. We're, going to, we're actually going to challenge that Virginia law because we're going to go right to federal court. And this became Cohen's v. Virginia. 
Now, this is a very important decision because what essentially happens is John Marshall will say, I don't care what you said about this, Virginia. You can't, you can't stop an appeal to federal court because we're going to listen to the case. So it doesn't matter what your law is. We're just going to, we're going to hear the case anyways. And uh, it doesn't matter what you think. We are supreme. So one thing the Virginia governor, the governor at the time, who was actually uh, Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law, uh, he said, um, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. We're going to appoint, we're going to appoint two defense attorneys, and what you're going to do is you're going to go to court, and you're going to make your, you're going to make your uh, arguments, and then if uh, they try to pull any shenanigans, just say, you know what, Virginia's not going to allow itself to be sued under the 11th Amendment. We're out of here. And that's exactly what these guys did. They made their arguments, and then they invoked the 11th Amendment defense, but the federal government still ruled against them anyways. So how good is the 11th Amendment? This is the real problem. You have to have people that believe in this. But one of the defense attorneys uh, was a man named Philip Pendleton Barber. Now, uh, there's a very good book about Philip Pendleton Barber out there now. It's by a guy named William Belko, and it's entitled Philip Pendleton Barber. Uh, I think it's uh, an old Republican in King Andrew's court, I think is the subtitle. Uh, And so Barber eventually became a Supreme Court justice himself. He actually died when he was on the bench. Uh, But Barber was arguing for the state of Virginia, and he said this, quote, A twofold system of legislation pervades the United States, the one of which I will call federal, the other municipal. The first belongs by the Constitution of the United States to Congress, and consists of the powers of war, peace, commerce, negotiation, and those general powers which make up our external relations, together with a few powers of an internal kind, which require uniformity in their operation. So he's saying these are these are your federal powers. And he listen, war, peace, commerce, negotiation, and some general powers that require uniformity. The second kind of power belongs to the states and consists of whatever is not included in the first, embracing particularly everything connected with the internal police and economy of the several states. Now, this is precisely how the Constitution was sold to the states during ratification. And Barber was very consistent on this point all throughout his political career. Uh, He actually, he continually made these designations. There's a federal power and there's a municipal power. The federal government has virtually zero municipal powers. He said the only time the federal government has a municipal power is maybe, in, of course, in Washington, D.C., which is constitutionally delegated to them, and perhaps in the territories. Now, that's an interesting statement because we could talk about you know, what kind of municipal powers the general government has in the territories. But he would say because the United States government organized the territories and regulated the territories, they have municipal power in the territories. So this was, this was his particular position. But essentially what he's saying is that even though the general government has municipal power in Maryland, uh, I'm sorry, in D.C., it doesn't have any municipal power in Maryland or Virginia at all. And so uh, we have what's happening here is a distorted view of the powers of the general government. By saying that uh, you can appeal this decision all the way to the federal court system, you're saying that somehow the states are municipalities of the general government. He said this is simply not the case. It can never be the case under an original understanding of the Constitution. But, of course, we don't follow that original understanding of the Constitution. 
Barber said that Section 25 was an unconstitutional usurpation of power by the general government. And that only Congress, only Virginia, I'm sorry, not Congress, could enlarge or contrast its own judicial jurisdiction. So, <clears throat> the important thing about these guys arguing against Marshall in Combs v. Virginia is that they're pointing out originalism. They're pointing out originalism. And we ignore that at our own peril. Some of the things we're doing now, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, discussions of nullification. You've got open discussion of secession. You've got discussion of real federalism. You've got all these things. These issues are not new. What's happened is that they've been buried by the general government, and not only that, an American education system that makes you believe that uh, we've got the federal government has unlimited power. It's supreme in everything. It rules by decree, and you must follow citizen or you're going to get in big trouble. Now, Spencer Rowan followed up Barber after the decision came down, and he wrote this. He said, quote, The Supreme Court seems to have claimed an exemption from the restrictions of the Constitution by the unlimited right they have usurped to alter the Constitution as they please. He also said the Supreme Court ought not to have forgotten that although our general government is a national one as to some purposes, it is a federal one as to others. They ought also have to remember that states giving up some of their rights and becoming a member of the Federal Republic do not thereby cease to be sovereign states. But this is the argument that these states were mere corporations, not sovereign states. They're just corporations. They have corporate powers. Barber is saying, no, no. The states have complete power, complete sovereignty, not corporate power. And Rowan's saying the same thing. And finally, uh, he wrote this, quote, A federal compact between two parties is a non-entity if it is whatever one of those parties chooses to make it. And finally, he wrote in a letter to uh, James Madison, quote, It is firmly believed and deeply lamented that the late decision of the Supreme Court of the United States has sapped the foundations of our Constitution. Of that Constitution, which, in its original form and its subsequent amendments, you were so instrumental in establishing, and which you supported by the celebrated report that produced the glorious revolution of 1799. In fact, it is believed that this decision has entirely subverted the principles of that revolution. He's talking about Cohen's v. Virginia, which is why I say and why I focus on it in the book quite a bit, why it's one of the more important decisions in American history, because it did exactly what Rome said it did. It created all these problems. It reduced the states to mere corporations, to mere non-entities in this federal system. And as Jefferson continually pointed out, the states were the fourth leg of American government. You had a four-legged stool, you had the three branches of the general government, and then, of course, you had the states as the fourth leg. Now, some, somehow, we think that the fourth leg is actually the bureaucracy, which is so far from the truth, uh, it doesn't make any sense. That's exactly what the, the, uh, the modern statists believe, that the bureaucracy, the deep state, is somehow the fourth leg of government. But it's always been the states. And that's one of the things I wanted to hammer home in this particular book and why you should go out and pre-order it, why you should get in on those things, because, those again, those goodies are only going to last till the book comes out, and then I'm going to take them away. So... Um, Think about pre-ordering how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. You're going to get all this juicy stuff in the second half of the book. There's more in there, a lot more in there than what I went through today. And it's well worth 
the uh, 10 bucks for the Kindle edition or the what will be less than $20, uh, $30. So listed for $30 right now. It's probably going to be 20 bucks at the most when it comes out. It's well worth your, your uh, hard-earned dollars to get it. And I hope you do that and take advantage of the giveaways. And I will see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. Thank you.